Um, so, we just spent a lot of time spending, uh, reflecting on what God has done and, and spending time doing these uh, testimonies. Um, and so, here's, what, here's how these, the next little while is going to look. I, I have been critiqued in the past for, for preaching quickly, for speaking very quickly when I preach. And usually I try to fight against that. But today, because we have been here for so long already, I'm just going to go fast. So hopefully you guys can keep up. Hopefully uh, the energy will be there. So that's it. Let me pray one more time before we begin that the Lord will give us uh, strength as we, as we seek to uh, hear from him. God, we know that we've already heard a lot and we've already reflected on so much that you've done. And so we pray that as we spend time in your word this evening, that we would be encouraged, even though um, maybe tired or, or, or our attention span is already beginning to wane. So we ask for your help. We ask for your spirit to be at work in our midst, even now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in order to maintain any relationship in life, sacrifices have to be made. If you want a relationship to progress, you need to sacrifice your own preferences and your own agenda in order for that relationship to succeed. There has to be some form of give and take in any sort of relationship in order for it to work. I mean, imagine if you tried to, to engage with someone in a friendship where you were unwilling to sacrifice for the sake of that friendship. So every time you hang out with this person, you decide, we're going to go out to eat. And my favorite place is Wendy's. And so we're going to go to Wendy's every time. Well, it turns out your friend is vegan. And, and your friend does not want to go to Wendy's. Even though you love fast food, your friend's like, you know, I would really rather go somewhere else, but you aren't willing to sacrifice. You're not willing to lay down your preferences for the sake of your friend. So unless you're willing to change your heart and, and decide to go to some hippie vegan restaurant on occasion, I have the feeling that that relationship is not going to go anywhere. I know of a place in Berkeley. It's called The Butcher's Son. It's often very crowded when I go by there, and I think it's all vegan stuff, oddly enough, even though the name is Butcher's Son. So if you need a place to bring your vegan friends there, you can, there you go. You can go to The, the Butcher's Son. Uh, son. Okay, so imagine now you're, you're a guy and you're going to be in a relationship with this girl, right? Sacrifices have to be in, made in order for that relationship to work, right? So you begin this relationship and you're saying, okay, we have all these common interests. We both love to go to the movies. This is going to work perfectly. We're going to be able to go to the movies every single weekend. And so every weekend you decide to do that. But it turns out you as the guy... Obviously, you love sappy romantic comedies. You love movies like The Notebook. You love movies like that weird, stupid vampire love story, um, Twilight. And whenever you go to the movies, those are the types of movies you want to see. Even though the girl that you're dating loves gory action movies like Gladiator and The Patriot and... um, Saving Private Ryan, right? Her favorite scene is the, 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 the moment when Mel Gibson is 
leaning over the guy with a hatchet in hand, and there's just blood splattering into the air, right? That's her favorite scene, and you're just dragging her to the sappy romantic comedies. I don't think that relationship is going to work unless you begin to sacrifice your own preferences, sacrifice your own desires for the sake of the relationship. In order for any relationship to work, there has to be an element of give and take. There has to be sacrifice. You have to die to your own desires in order for that relationship to work. Well, in a way, biblical sacrifices are no different. When we come to scripture, the biblical idea of sacrifice is all about maintaining relationship. However, the sacrifices that we read about in the pages of scripture are not about one sacrificing time or preference or energy. This isn't the, the idea of I'm going to you know, sacrifice my desire to go to Wendy's and I'm going to go to the butcher's son. Or I'm going to go to the, the hippie vegan place. It's not the idea, okay, I guess I'll go to the Marvel movie with you. And the biblical idea of sacrifice, there is blood. There is death. There is literally the laying down of one's life for the sake of someone else. Here we have the slaughtering of animals. But we have to know that even though the form of sacrifice may look completely different, the purpose and the intention is actually very similar. It's the maintaining of relationship. The goal is the same. The sacrifices that we read about in scripture enable God to dwell with his people. The sacrifice of Christ enables God to dwell with his people. But why? Why in the world would God choose to restore his relationship with human beings in such a gruesome, odd way? Why is it that the blood and the death and the animals are necessary. Well, this evening, I hope that our passage answers many of these questions because here we see why these sorts of sacrifices are actually necessary in order to maintain the relationship between God and man. Tonight we are in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23 through chapter 10, verse 18. This is a long passage. I'd encourage you to turn there with me. I want to read through the entire passage just so that we can hear it in its entirety. Again, chapter 9, verse 23, and we'll go through chapter 10, verse 18. Verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these which are according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for, uh, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So in our passage tonight, I know it's, it was long and I know there's a lot of details there. But what we see is that Jesus oversees the ultimate and final day of atonement. So remember, in the book of Hebrews, we've seen that Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua. We've seen that Jesus delivers a better and a final word. He delivers his people to a better promised land. He is a better high priest. He has inaugurated a better covenant. Well, tonight we see he inaugurates and he oversees a better day of atonement. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we see a clear allusion to the day of atonement. You don't see those words used, the day of atonement, but he's clearly looking back on an event described in Leviticus 16. He's pointing back to the Day of Atonement, an annual event that would take place in Israel's history. If you're familiar with uh, Judaism today, they still celebrate this holiday. It's called Yom Kippur. It's one of the most important uh, uh, holidays in the Jewish calendar. And if you were at Winter Retreat, if you were at Winter Retreat last year, we actually spent time discussing this passage at length. Remember, this is one of the most important days in Israel's calendar. It's an annual sacrifice that was offered to God and it was intended to cleanse Israel of their sin. 
So on this specific day, every year, the priest would enter into the inner sanctuary of the temple in order to present blood to God on his altar. It was intended to satisfy God's wrath against sin, and it was intended to provide the means by which God could dwell with his people Israel. But notice what we see in verse 1 of chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. So this is a shadow. The Old Testament, the old day of atonement was a shadow of something better. Look at chapter 10, verse 1, and then look now at verse 4. We see here that these sacrifices never actually perfected the people of Israel. That wasn't actually their intention. Their true intention is highlighted in verse 3. All they did was they gave Israel a constant reminder of their sin. They were given essentially an annual portrait of their desperate need for God to intervene with his grace on their behalf. So instead of giving Israel a solution for their sin through these sacrifices, God gave them a reminder of their sin through these sacrifices. But these sacrifices were not going to accomplish what the Israelites desperately needed. And that's because the Day of Atonement was actually intended to point our attention to Christ. It was actually a reminder that our relationship with with God was hindered and it needed to be restored. And so in that sense, the Day of Atonement took place every year simply as a means of preparing the people of Israel for the ultimate sacrifice that would one day come in the person of Christ. And so chapter 10 verses 5 through 10. Here we see that Christ came with a specific intention to establish a better day of atonement. So let's camp on this for a moment. First in verses 5 through 7 we see that Christ recognizes the failures of the old sacrificial system. So this is actually a quote from Psalm 40 and and the author of Hebrews is applying it to Jesus. And he's saying, these were Jesus' words when he came to the earth. He said, the sacrifices, I, I see God does not delight in these. God does not delight in these burnt offerings. But then he says, I came to do God's will. And then in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10, we see what it actually means for Christ to come and do God's will. What does that mean? It means that Christ is going to come and he's going to offer himself as a better sacrifice. He's saying, God has given me a body. I have come to do your will. And then verse 10 of chapter 10, let me just read that one more time. And by that will that is the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body, Jesus Christ, once and for all. So notice, Jesus came with intention. He had a mission when he came to earth. Have you ever thought about this? When Jesus came, what was his actual mission? Have you ever asked yourself that? I think it's actually tempting to read the Gospels at times and think, 
man, if only the Israelites would have followed their Messiah, Jesus would not have had to die. Maybe you read through the Gospels and you think, I bet Jesus was thinking, man, I guess this didn't work. Maybe now I have to die, right? Is that what you're thinking when you're reading through the Gospels? That's not the case. You see, the death of Christ was not a plan B in the mind of God. Christ came to die. His death is not merely reactionary to a situation at hand, right? He's not just reacting to the fact that the Israelites are denying him. This was actually the plan all along. God's plan was for Christ to come die and completely transform the sacrificial system. He came knowing you have a will for me. Psalm 40. And now, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but we need to recognize this. This actually does give us hope in the midst of our suffering. Right? If God was purposeful and intentional in Christ's death, then you and I can be confident that God is sovereign even in our suffering. He has sovereign intentions even in the most unthinkable moment in history. And so let's remember that when God was at work in the most unthinkable moment of history, he was actually accomplishing the most unthinkable, glorious truth you could ever imagine. Even as the creator of mankind is being crucified by mankind, God is redeeming mankind. Think about that for a moment. This means that you and I can trust God. We can trust that he is in control of our lives. Even in the difficulties, we can trust that God is at work. Even when you are hurting, you can trust that God is in control. Even when you feel as though everything around you is falling apart, there is hope that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. If God was able to show the most profound demonstration of his love in the most awful moment in human history, he can surely work for your good even when things seem to be completely out of your control. Jesus came in order to establish a better day of atonement. And so let's consider now, coming back out of our rabbit trail, what does this better sacrifice actually accomplish? Well, in our passage, we find three reasons Christ's day of atonement is better than the previous one. First, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Christ attains access to the presence of God on our behalf. So through this better day of atonement, we see that Christ has attained access to the presence of God and he has done this for our sake. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Notice how there's this comparison between the earthly tent and the true presence of God in heaven. What is going on 
with this comparison. Remember, he's pointing back to the Day of Atonement and he's showing this is a shadow of reality. It's a copy of what is truly taking place in the heavenly realms. Chapter 9, verse 23, he refers to the earthly tent as a copy of the heavenly things. Chapter 10, verse 1, it is a shadow of the heavenly realities. You see, the point here is not that there's like some literal physical temple up in the heaven where there are like angelic beings like slaughtering animals up there, right? That's not what he's saying. When he's saying this is a copy, that's not what he's getting at. What he's saying is that the earthly tent, the earthly tabernacle, the earthly holy of holies, the day of atonement was meant to point our attention to a heavenly reality. It was meant to point our attention to what is going on in the presence of God. This is a tangible portrait of an eternal reality. Remember the priest, what, what happened on the day of atonement? The priest was achieving access into the presence of God within the Holy of Holies by offering sacrifices. So there's a tangible portrait of something greater. Slaughters the animal, and now we can enter into the Holy of Holies where God is most purely dwelling. But Christ's sacrifice is superior. You see, he did not earn a once a year right of permission into the presence of God. That's what happened with the earthly priests. Sacrifice the lamb, they enter in, drop the blood on the altar and then leave they get access into the presence of God once a year probably for a few minutes that's not the case with Christ he has an eternal and permanent access into God's presence it's the first way Christ's sacrifice is better second way Jesus was granted access into God's immediate presence within the heavens So while the priests were given access into the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies was a shadow of the direct, unfiltered presence of God that is in the heavenly temple. We also need to recognize that Christ, this is, I think, the most profound thing about what we see here. Christ did not just gain access for his own sake. He gained access into the presence of God for our sake. Now we can enter into the presence of God. You see, for the, 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 the priest, the high priest, when he's sacrificing the lamb and he gets to go into the presence of God, there was one individual once a year who was able to enter into the Holy of Holies, the high priest. That was it. With Christ, something dramatically has changed. Something dramatic has, has happened. Now All of the people of God get to enter into the Holy of Holies, but not just this earthly tent. Now each and every one of us get to enter into the presence of God directly. So Christ's day of atonement is better than the previous day of atonement because he grants each and every one of us permanent access into the immediate presence of God. Now, verses 25 through 28. Second reason Christ's day of atonement is better is seen here. Jesus offers one perfect sacrifice that does away 
with every other sacrifice that was offered beforehand. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to read verses 25 to 28. Just going to keep moving. Jesus' day of atonement sacrifice is better because it puts an end to all of the other sacrifices that were offered by the high priest. It makes all of the other sacrifices null and void. I mean, think about this. Previously, the day of atonement happened every single year for centuries. But now, we have one sacrifice. You know, the, the, the repetition of those offerings actually proves that they were ineffective. That's what verses 1 and 2 say from chapter 10. If those sacrifices actually achieved forgiveness, then they would have been done away with. You wouldn't have to keep doing them every single year, but in fact, their repetition proved they were inadequate. And so another sacrifice was needed, one that was not inadequate, one that did not have to be repeated. So in comes Christ, and he delivers the once and for all sacrifice. This is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. During World War I, there was a British commentator named H.G. H. Wells, and he wrote a number of articles about the war. And these articles were eventually turned into a book that was titled, The War That Will End All War. So this guy is commenting on the First World War. And he comes up with this slogan. He's an idealist. There's this legitimate thought that this brutal, nearly global war would bring an end to all of the other wars. It's the necessary cost in order to bring peace on earth. And after over 41 million casualties, you would certainly hope that the First World War would deliver on that promise. But a couple decades later we encountered a far more deadly war. World War II ended up being far more deadly than the first. Some estimate that World War II resulted in in more than 80 million casualties, nearly twice as many as were experienced during the first war, the war to end all wars. Well, I think it's tempting to ask, is Christ's once and for all sacrifice similar? Did the sacrifice to end all sacrifices actually end all sacrifices, right? Or was it just wishful thinking? Did Christ's sacrifice on the cross actually do what it was intended to do? Well, the Gospel of Matthew certainly argues that this is the case. He certainly argues that this sacrifice was effective. Matthew 27, this is one of the most interesting passages in the entire book of Matthew. There are three verses after Jesus dies on the cross. Verses 51 to 53. 27 verses 51 through 53. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. And the rocks were split open. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. 
And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So there's two things that Jesus' death did here. First off, he dies and the temple curtain is torn in half. In other words, this is the curtain to the Holy of Holies. The place in the sanctuary we've just been talking about. The place that's separated. It's this curtain that's intended to separate what is common from what is holy. It's this curtain that's intended to contain the presence of of God. Well, this event, the curtain tearing into, is saying essentially the same exact thing that we see here in the book of Hebrews. All who trust in Christ now have access into the Holy of Holies. But not just the earthly tent, we have access into the actual presence of God. The curtain is torn, and now we can approach God with boldness. So, was his sacrifice effective? According to verse 51 of chapter 27, the answer is yes. But that's not all we see here. In verses 52 and 53, we see something extremely odd. Right? Jesus dies, and a bunch of people rise from the dead. Matthew literally says nothing other than they raise from the dead, they rise from the dead, and they enter into Jerusalem. And that's all he says. Next story right? It literally, like, verse 54 is just, okay, next story now. That's it. It's one of the oddest statements in the book of Matthew, especially because when you start reading Matthew and studying, you realize he is so intentional with every single word. You know, when I was graduating at Southern Seminary, I was getting my master's, and there was a guy graduating the same time as I was, but he was getting his PhD. And when you do a PhD, you get, uh, you have to essentially write a book, it's called a dissertation. And, you know, when, when these guys get their PhDs, they walk across their stage and they're wearing their fancy regalia. They have these crazy hats on. And the, the president of the school is reading out the title of their dissertations. And, you know, at a school, like a seminary, where everything's like theological, you can only imagine like the titles that these guys are reading. Right? They're reading, I mean, for anyone who's not a Christian, even most Christians have no clue what they're saying, right? It's like a Presbyterian perspective on progressive covenantalism in the 19th century, and you're like, okay, who, like, who cares, right? Who knows what in the world that even means? And then this guy that I'm graduating with wrote his dissertation on Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, and he walks across the stage, and the title of his dissertation is, I See Dead People. Right? And like everyone kind of loses it. Like, okay, finally, like someone who's like obviously really smart and getting his PhD with like a little bit of humor. So, anyways, what in the world is happening here? Why is it that all Matthew says is that these guys rise from the dead, these saints rise from the dead, and he doesn't say what they said? He doesn't say, like, did they have resurrected bodies? Did they just ascend into heaven eventually? Did they die again? We don't have any details. But again, Matthew is intentional with the stories he tells. You see, the the point of this passage in Matthew 27 is not to say whether or not these people had resurrected bodies. It's not to point out whether 
or not they just ascended straight into heaven after they talked to a bunch of people in Jerusalem. That's not the point. The point is to show that what Christ did on the cross was effective. The punishment that Christ bore on his back enabled dead saints to rise from the grave and experience new life. That's the entirety of Matthew's point in bringing up that story. And so, we need to recognize, according to Matthew, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices is far different from the war to end all wars. It was actually effective. And we cannot forget the resurrection of Christ, right? Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead in order to approve or to prove that what he did on the cross was actually effective. His resurrection was proof that our infinite, innocent God could not be bound by the chains of death. So yes, his sacrifice was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. His sacrifice does grant us access into the immediate presence of God. Now the final thing we see, the final reason that this day of atonement is better is portrayed in chapter 10 verses 11 through 18. Here we see why Jesus' sacrifice grants us access into God's presence, and we see why Jesus' death was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It's because this sacrifice, this day of atonement, actually forgives sins. Christ's death actually forgives sins. This is the final reason. Christ's day of atonement is so much more superior than the previous one. Here we see that Christ actually accomplishes the forgiveness of sins. And we need to be reminded by what we see in verse 11. The Old Testament sacrificial system did not actually offer forgiveness. It merely offered the reminder of sins. It reminded us of our desperate need for grace. And that is a good thing. As prideful, profoundly prideful people, we need to be reminded of our perpetual sin. That's true. And so a sacrificial system that's constantly, annually reminding us of our sin is actually a good thing. And yet these sacrifices were actually insufficient to solve our deeper problem, our deepest problem. Our deepest problem was not merely an awareness of sins. Our deepest problem was our need for forgiveness. And so let's consider for a moment how this sacrifice, the day, this, this day of atonement is different from the previous ones. Let's consider what makes this day of atonement so different. First off, in the final day of atonement, there is a man dying for man. Man for mankind. Under the old system, it was not co-equals, right? There, There was a lesser dying in the place of the greater. In God's eyes, the lamb is not equal to man. And therefore, the lesser cannot suffice to to offer forgiveness. 
but that's not all we see in this final day of atonement. We also see that it is not only man in the place of mankind, it is God in the place of mankind. And this means that our infinite God died for us, and when our infinite God died for us, he was actually able to bear the infinite weight of God's wrath. You see, our eternal God died for us, and this means that he is actually able to bear the consequences of sin, the eternal consequences of sin. We need an infinite and eternal God to die in our place. And so in this new day of atonement, we move from lesser dying for the greater to the the ultimate, the supreme God of the universe dying for mankind. We see that in this new system, the perfect is dying for the imperfect. You see, when the perfect is judged, he's not being judged for his own sin, right? Christ, the perfect son of God, suffered judgment, but he obviously was not bearing his own judgment. He was bearing yours. He was bearing mine. Not only that, but he who had no guilt took our guilt. He wasn't suffering punishment for his own guilt. The punishment that he bore was for ours. So through Christ, forgiveness is actually possible. In fact, he's the only means of forgiveness. He's the only individual capable of providing the forgiveness we need. And therefore, we need to ask ourselves, are we trusting solely in the forgiveness offered through Christ? Do you come to Christ and Christ alone in order to find forgiveness for your sin, or do you look elsewhere? You know, it can be tempting to look elsewhere for forgiveness, especially when you've grown up in the church or you've been in the church for a while and you constantly are reminded that Jesus is the only means of forgiveness. If, if you're hearing that over and over and over, it's, it's easy for your heart to grow cold to that reality. And what happens is we often, after growing cold to these truths, begin to look elsewhere for forgiveness which is exactly what the Hebrews were tempted with. Remember, that's, that's the whole premise of the book of Hebrews. They're tempted to abandon Christ and go back to the old way of doing things. They aren't trusting that Christ is actually able to deliver on his promises. They aren't trusting that Christ is actually able to offer them the forgiveness that they're searching for. And so what we typically do follow their example and we look elsewhere for God's grace and so I ask are you striving to restore your own relationship with God apart from the grace of Christ maybe you're looking to yourself for rescue you think I'm serving in multiple ministries I'm serving in middle school ministry I'm here every Tuesday I'm, I'm helping with the setup team or the teardown team I'm at church whenever the doors are open. I'm spending time in prayer. I'm spending time in the word. All of those are good things. But it can be tempting to think in that moment, of course I'm forgiven. Look at everything I'm doing. Look at everything I bring to the table. Of course God will forgive me. 
I'm faithful in serving God's community. I'm faithful in serving Christ. And begin, we begin to have this perspective. And when we do, we begin to f- actually run the risk of it's abandoning the gospel. You see, you and I can't make up for our own sins. It's not as though we can just do a bunch of good and cancel out all the debts we have. We can't restore the relationship between us and God. Remember, you and I, we caused the problem in the first place. So let's not pretend that we can then mend it or fix it. God, in his grace, decided to restore this relationship He's the only one capable of doing so, and he has done so in his son. So I ask, evaluate your motives. Are you serving Christ in thankfulness for what he has done, or are you seeking to restore the relationship that he died to mend? So remember, every every relationship does deserve sacrifice. In fact, relationships won't succeed unless there is sacrifice. Yet we have to remember that this relationship between God and man will not be restored through our sacrifices. This relationship will only be restored through God's sacrifice. It's only through this ultimate sacrifice of Christ that our relationship with God can be restored. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your grace and the fact that you have shown your kindness to us. Lord, you have provided our only means of restoration of this relationship that we have with you. So we pray that you'd help us to trust that. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.